This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. Did you know that pulses like beans, peas, and lentils are not only super nutritious, they're also incredibly sustainable. Pulses have one of the lowest water and carbon footprints of any other protein source. That is why we love getting samples of local Pulse, who make just-add-water meals like cocoa and buckwheat muesli or chipotle and lime black bean hummus. Order from localpulse.ca and have them delivered to your door. Make sure to use the code PAW20 to save 20% on your order. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome to episode number 80 of Pawn Order. My name is Peter Sankoff. I'm your co-host today and I am here with my usual co-host, Camille Lobchuk. How are you, Camille? Hello, Peter. I am doing pretty well. I am still in Montreal. Mm -hmm. I spoke a little bit about this on the last episode, but I've been here for a little while with some family stuff. And uh, I'm going back to Toronto soon. Mostly I've been eating good vegan food in Montreal. Takeout, obviously, but there's a lot of it here. I vaguely remember. (laughs) That is, of course, as uh, some listeners know, my hometown. And uh, my mother uh, still lives there. And uh, I have not been now in... um, I'm actually not sure the last time I was there. That's how long it's been. It's at least obviously since the pandemic, but I wasn't there in the early months of January. I think it was November of 2019. <laughs> that was my last Ages visit. Ago. And that was only, that was ago. like a day visit too. I went in for my friend's birthday, my friend's 50th. So that was it. It's been, it's been a long time since I've had a serious visit. It's been possibly two years. Isn't that nuts? And that's my hometown and my mom lives there. I know that is nuts. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, what are since, we doing? What since, are we doing? Since a big part of this podcast before the pandemic used to be talking about vegan food we ate while on the road, <laughs> I finally have a contribution toward that end. So yeah, I'm going to list me, the things I've eaten. I went to Chu Chai, which is one of the oldest and best veg restaurants in Montreal. Classic, well, the black pepper I'll duck. Tell you, can I tell you? Can duck. I tell you how classic and how old it is? This is sure. this is going to blow your mind. Like, so Chu Chai opened before I left Montreal. And I left Montreal. Ooh. I left Montreal. I moved away, and I've never lived there again since. I moved away to go to law school in 1993. And Chu Chai was already open. Crazy, eh? Man, I first went in, like, 2006, and I thought it was old on that basis. Yeah. Holy cow. So because I was, way back in the day, I was, I was one of those people who flirted with vegetarianism. I'm not going to 
say I was a full vegetarian. I didn't go vegetarian completely until 2000, long before you, I might add, Camille. And uh, vegan also long. Uh, uh, sorry, I went vegetarian yeah. in on. 1995. Uh, hold on. So. Uh, vegan long before you, Camille, 2004. You got to give me that one. Um, You're older than me. <laughs> cough, cough. I am. So I moved in 1993 and uh, I used to, as I said, I was vegetarian off and on through the 90s, uh, early 90s. So uh, so I went to Chuchai because that was the only place I could go with my parents. Because back in those days, I mean, people, most of our listeners are young sprites. They, they won't even believe this, but it wasn't like you could go get an impossible burger at Burger King. There was really um, nothing to eat. You know what I mean? It was like, so Chuchai was where I went for big occasion. Pretty cool. Mm, yeah. So I'm well, glad you liked it. The duck is the my best. favorite. Yeah, the duck and the crispy, crispy spinach. Did you try the crispy spinach? Oh, yes, we did try this crispy, yeah, crispy spinach. spinach. It was excellent. Good. All right. Well, what there's else? There's a new place called new place called Maynard's, which is sort of like Southern style, kind of less healthy stuff. I had like this hot chicken or Nashville chicken sandwich, I think it was called, and a bunch of like mushrooms that were turned into wing like items, which nice. were delicious. Nice. Um, but most importantly, I happened to be staying just a few minutes away from an excellent spot called Cafe de Campy. Have you been there? Uh, it rings a bell, but I don't think I have actually been. It's a vegan bakery, and it's kind of Italian style. Like they've got a lot of interesting pastries. Uh, you know, panzerotti, like folded dough with stuffing inside. Um, God, there was yeah, like this, it does ring basically a, a Nutella cinnamon roll that was super good. Oh, that's it was all just good. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. well, that's fantastic. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, no, uh, I'm yeah. a big fan uh, for, for anybody who does go to Montreal. I'm also a big fan because it's right near where my mom lives. Uh, Panther Vert. There's a few of them now. Uh, Panther Vert, there's like four or five of them. I just find oh, their yeah, food really, really, really like it's, it's, it's comfort food, but it's a little healthy than comfort food like because they do it yeah, all it's organic. Wholesome. Yeah, but I, I find their food good. I actually, my favorite thing are their desserts. They have an awesome brownie and, uh, and uh, really good uh, cookies and so I, I just love their stuff. It's really yummy. They have a, a dish called Vira Misu as well, which I think has to do with something like live tiramisu. Yeah, that rings a bell too. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. Man, it's crazy. I gotta get back. Ah, yeah. need a so vaccination. what have you been up to? Uh, not much. I'm just crazy busy. I am winding down everything well, winding down. I have uh, essentially things are really crazy uh, in in my life right now. I oh my god, I have so many little stories. I didn't even write this in. I have a bunch. So so I'm in this really crazy phase. So uh, 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 law school has ended, right? So um, law school, uh, I'm no longer teaching because I'm on sabbatical next semester. So my law school year is winding down. Although I just did, a, we did a really good. Um, we had a PhD um, sort of progress meeting with my student Mark. Marcello, who we interviewed on this podcast, who's doing a really wonderful animal law dissertation. And uh, my colleague, Jessica Eisen, who has also been a guest on this show, is on that supervisory committee. And we had a really productive discussion about uh, Marcello's work. So uh, I'm winding down on that. But my other work is really winding up because mainly because I've scheduled a, my first holiday literally since the pandemic started. So I've scheduled a three week holiday. And as I've told my wife, it is marked in pen. So so like nothing can go in those three weeks, but you know what that's like when you have that, it just puts a lot of pressure to get everything done in the three weeks prior. But the exciting news for me work-wise is that I'm just so busy with all the various projects I'm in. So I think I've mentioned here before that I have my first associate. Um, I hired her way back in January actually, but she's been on maternity leave. So she is starting after my holiday. So uh, 
uh, July 16th uh, is her start date, July 19th. So she starts and I have more exciting news because I'm just so excited about everything that's happening. Um, I have also, Camille, I have hired, this isn't public news yet, but I'm pretty sure that the people who might be listening to Paw & Order are not the people that are, are gonna, you know, spread the news, but it'll be public probably <laughs> by the time this comes out anyway. Um, I have hired, Camille, an articling student for the year 2022. Ooh. Yeah, I'm supervising. Wow, I didn't know about this. Yeah, this is this is cool. pretty new. So I am co-supervising an articling student with my colleague, Dino Batos, and I will be the primary supervisor and uh, she will be working with me. For some reason, I only hire women. I don't know. It's really weird. I, I was thinking about that the other day because I know I'm like, I'm always trying to encourage young women to do well. But like the crazy thing is I have two summer students this year, both women, which was not not like by design. They just happened to be the best candidates. I interviewed men as well. I just chose two women. Although I, the funny thing is, and then I have another research project and I have two men, but my, my associate is female and so is my new articling student. So I'm surrounded. Uh, and my our articling student this year is another female who was on my Gale Cup team. So I've got like this whole assortment of very talented young women uh, who are going to make a mark in criminal law and probably some animal law too. So I'm very excited about it because they'll be my associate at the very least will be, I don't know if she'll be helping us because the factum, of course, on the Chen thing is due before uh, she starts. So probably not helping us, but uh, on future projects, uh, they will be helping me. So it's very exciting. Well, this is great. Be careful what you wish for, because I have a number of cases that I'd like to bring <laughs> that Fantastic. pull your office into. Oh, delightful. Well, we will be doing all that, but mainly I'm ready for vacation. This is my uh, second to last podcast before we go on vacation. My other podcast, my podcast Bigamy, which is called Translating Criminal Law, which I do with my kids, we have just about wound up for the season. We were doing, we were, we were clever enough, Camille, to create a seasonal podcast because I find, you know what I mean? Like I love Paw and Order. We love us some Paw and Order, but the two week grind got to me enough that I'm now every four weeks. It's a lot of work. It's like, it, it goes, it just, it keeps going. It's relentless. So what I found is that like my kids and I, we've been rigorous. We have not missed a week. We've done 12 shows over 24 weeks. Like we have not missed, but like, that's it. We're done. 24 weeks is enough. And we will probably come back in the fall. Like probably once my kids are back into their fall routine, but we don't want to start doing this through the summer. So we have one more episode and I can give you a preview for listeners. We have a special episode. Our 12th episode involves a, um, an interview that my daughter did with uh, a Canadian Olympian who was also my summer student. So we were able to, <laughs> to, how do we get criminal law in the Olympics together? And, uh, That's we are quite the combination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I hired, I uh, didn't know you had an Olympian summer student. Yeah. What, last, what kind of last summer, sport? Danielle Lapage, she was the first of the hundred interns hired and she is, uh, oh. she is a gold medal hope in, uh, in women's wrestling. She's a, she's a world champion. Oh. So yeah, she just finished her law degree at the University of Calgary. So we managed to score uh, 30 minutes from her very busy training schedule. And my daughter did a really fun interview with questions like, what's harder, competing for a gold medal or working for my dad? <laughs> Ooh, I know which one I would choose. <laughs> Trying to deal with your abrasive personality all day. <laughs> she loved she loved that question. My daughter loved that. So anyway, so that's what's going on. I'm uh, really, really, I've never been more ready for a vacation. Honestly, uh, I don't I don't know if I've ever been more ready for a vacation in my life. And it's probably because it's the longest period I've ever gone without vacations. And I mean that because normally, I don't know about you, Camille, normally during the year, you schedule a weekend here and a week 
week in there. I usually do. Like I get spring break. I try to go for a week. I try to pull my kids. I try to go in there. But because there's no travel, you just gravitate towards work. So I have, I took literally four days off at Christmas because I had to mark exams. So that was the most I could take. Christmas is never a good one for me, but I skipped both my usual fall and spring break. So as a result, I've just been going nonstop and I've, I've never needed a vacation more. Yeah, I hear you. I'm basically in the same boat. The last time I took any time off was like last July for like four days. I went camping and yeah, no, I think, I think we had a lot this of us discussion. are feeling that way right now. We had this discussion. I'm sure off we have. Air. Yeah, we had this discussion off air when I think I don't want to paraphrase what you said or put words in your mouth. But I think at one point you said, well, what's the point? I, that might have been you or it might have been. A I know, of mine. I know, yeah, because it feels like, it. Yeah. you know, if you're going to take time off, you should go somewhere or do something. And and you can't really do that right now, although pretty soon, pretty soon that's going to change. Yeah. And I did encourage like you. I did encourage you to do it anyway. Um, the good news is and I am. I am going to do it anyway, Peter. And I'm going to I've got a couple weeks coming off, too. And coming up that I'm taking off as well. Um, I'm going to do a renovation. Yeah, no, I remember I'm that. I'm going to use a different part awesome. of my brain. I'm yeah. going to use like, you know, some, some kind of like. You're going to be so yeah, refreshed when you get back components. to work. <laughs> I won't be looking at the computer screen all that day. So true. I think that's as that good as a rest. True. That is true. You know what? It is a form of rest. I agree with you. But I am. Uh, we have booked. I was I got to say, I'm patting myself on the back because back in March, I had a feeling that summer places were going to be hard to go by. So I found a place on Airbnb that we were able to book with full cancellation. So it was like, that was really hard. Most Airbnb places wanted 50%, like guaranteed. And I was like, mm. I just kept looking and looking until I finally found a place that we could cancel up to the day before with no cost. And I was like, once we got that, I booked it way back in March and we've got um, two weeks in uh, on a lake in BC. And it looks like from the BC rules that we're, we're, we're planning to leave right at the end of June. Under the BC rules, we are now allowed to enter BC. And of course, the Alberta rules, as we know, are even more liberal. <laughs> By that point, it's stampede time. What rules? So, <laughs> yeah, we forgot oh to mention the Alberta okay. rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. Although I was I was infuriated yesterday to read this article, um, you know, so the stampede is going forward, which I don't think is necessarily a disaster on its own. Like, it's hard to say, you know, outdoor stuff, lower transmission, maybe it'll be fine. But what really bothered me is apparently we're giving Americans special exemptions to come across the border and do rodeo, rodeo events yeah. at the stampede. Lovely. And we did the same thing with Mystic Aquarium when it came up to get the belugas from Marineland. We gave them exemptions, too, from the quarantine. So it's like, you know, all these people have been denied seeing their families in the States for a year, year and a half. But, oh, if you want to abuse a horse and sit on the back of a yes, you know, animal and ride them and cause them suffering. We need our whatever. stampede. No big right? deal. Yeah. Stampede, stampede, stampede. Anyway, uh, that's going to be delightful. Um, well, I say that, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, the Alberta rules mean, uh, you know, things are opening up here as quicker than you can believe. It is going to be the best Alberta summer ever, says Jay Kenny. He's mm -hmm. just like, uh, yeah, I don't know what to tell you anyway the less we say about that the better but my holiday looks like it will go ahead that's what's most important to me we just got uh camille we just bought have you ever tried an inflatable kayak before uh yeah actually my yeah i used to have one on the sailboat and i did not like the inflatable kayak peter because i found that water inevitably got inside it and there's kind of like little grooves and so my bum always got wet and i was kind of just like cranky about that i but find maybe that happens in lap. a regular kayak the thing i don't like about it, it's obviously inferior to a regular kayak 
there's no question about it. I, you don't, it doesn't, you don't sit the same way in the water. It is, uh, it is not, it's, it's pretty stable, but it's just, it's, it's obviously doesn't cut through the water in the same way. It's an inflatable. That said, you can take it anywhere, right? It's just like, it's amazing. Yeah. Like you can, it's incredibly portable. And with my kids, I was like, look, I'm not starting to get a kayak roof rack, right? With four kayaks for us. Instead, we just got two inflatables. We're going to try that out. And uh, I've been amazed at how easy, what I, what I was surprised about is how quick it is to inflate. It inflates in like two seconds. And you just like, you jump in and you go. And I found that is really exciting. So we're going to do a lot of kayaking. Well, I'm wishing you all the best. Yes. Now, and, and speaking, speaking of wishing of the best. Summer plans, <laughs> wishing the best and summer plans. We want to give a shout out to our co-host, Jessica Scott-Reed, who's not with us today, uh, because she was the recipient of a prestigious fellowship to the University of Vermont Law School. It's a fellowship in farmed animal law and policy. So she's going to be, well, hopefully she can head there in person to Vermont in July, but it's unclear based on COVID rules. But if not, it'll be online. But she's going to take part in this really cool program. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Congratulations, uh, Jess. And, and like the fact that Jess is going to get some legal training on top of all her other training is just fantastic. It's really great. Yeah, I'm sure it'll make pay dividends on this Animal Law podcast. No which doubt. She's already very good at. Now, Camille, <laughs> does this count as an award? Because that's yet another show where you didn't win an award and someone else did. Like, I don't know how much longer <laughs> this can go on. Oh, my fragile <laughs> ego. I don't know if I can take it. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, congrats uh, to Jess. Now we have some podcast news. This is big. Yes. Camille. We've been working very hard on this. We are changing. Was this announced on the last show, by the way? Is this a second? We did mention okay. this on the last show, but just a reminder. We changed the podcast release time. Our our, our producer, Shannon, who between you and I, you know, it, it feels like metaphorically she wields a whip. I don't know if she actually carries a whip, certainly a non-leather variant of a whip, but she has determined that we are going to release podcasts earlier in the week. So this show is coming out earlier on Tuesday, June 1st. We are getting off our Friday schedule. We are moving to Tuesdays, Camille. Are you excited? Tuesdays feels fresh. I sure am. Oh. Yeah, a change is as good as a rest. I've, so been, on, I've been on pins and know. needles ever since we made the announcement. Ooh. And we'd love to hear feedback. If you if you think Tuesday's a better day, that's cool. If you prefer Friday, let us know about that too. We're just curious to see how this works out. Absolutely. And we've gotten, apparently we're just doing very well. We're getting rave, rave reviews, Camille. Um, and we have two, two new reviews. And I'm very excited. You want to read the first one, Camille? Sure. So this review is from um, Miri JD, who says, love your podcasts, P-A-W-D casts, which I love. Uh, Miri says, each episode is incredibly informative, even though the topics are difficult, especially for those of us sensitive to animal suffering. The episodes still leave me feeling better equipped and motivated to speak on behalf of animals. I love the witticisms. Ooh, are we funny? <laughs> the podcast is a lot of fun to listen to. I look forward to every new episode. Thank you, Miriam. Very kind of you. We have another one. In fact, we have a lot of reviews. I was checking recently. We have like, we get a lot of reviews. I was complaining. You remember I used to complain we didn't get reviews? But we've been I getting- I think all the complaining worked. Yeah, we've people been now getting, leave us reviews. we've been getting more and more uh, wonderful reviews. So I'm going to read uh, this one, which is from, oh, sorry. I just clicked off of that. I apologize. Oh, it's from our friend, Nicole Ada. Nicole Hi, Nicole. Ada. I started listening to the Paw and Order podcast in 2019. What? Not earlier, Nicole? Come on. There's a lot to catch 
catch up on. <laughs> on my early morning bike ride to work and instantly I was hooked. I learned a ton about issues going on locally and globally. They speak in a way that is easy to understand and is engaging. Hmm. It's incredible that there are lawyers for these worthy individuals who matter morally and deserve being fought for in court. We do our best. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you, Nicole. And thanks to everyone as well who supports us on Patreon. We have two new supporters to announce on this episode, Kelsey Henderson and Andrea Rogers. Thank you both so much for joining us. And you can sign up too to support us for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, at $5 a month, you get a mail card to say thank you, as always, and you also get a Pot and Order sticker. At $20, you get your choice of an official Pot and Order mug or a t-shirt. Peter is currently drinking from his mug, and it's great. And if you want a t-shirt just more generally, you can buy one at shop.animaljustice.ca. So you get a 15% discount at that online store if you're giving us $10 or more a month on Patreon. And from time to time, Peter, we also have fun giveaways mm-hmm. for our Patreon supporters, and we have one on this episode. I Exciting. am very excited. We are doing a giveaway from an excellent company called Sweets from the Earth, and I'm sure many of you, especially if you're in Canada, mm-hmm. consume their delicious treats, which are you can buy all over the place. They're often in coffee shops too, which is great. But they're an all-natural vegan bakery that offers Canada-wide shipping. And the winner of this giveaway is going to win a gift basket full of tasty vegan treats, which is a pretty awesome prize. Fantastic. So, Peter. Oh, do I need I my have, random number generator? You need your random number generator. All right, generator. I am going so to I right have now. the list of our Patreon supporters here, and we're going to want to choose a number between 1 and 38. All right, here we go. The answer is 23, Camille. 23, okay. Congratulations to Heather. Heather Stroik, I think is how you pronounce it. Heather, you are the winner of the Sweets from the Earth basket. Uh, Our producer Shannon will be in touch to arrange for that to be delivered to you. Thank you, Heather, and thanks everyone else who supports us on Patreon. All right, Peter, it's time for our news segment, and we're going to kick off today with a story about a lion breeding operation near Bancroft, Ontario. So we've spoken a little bit about this before, but there's a private zoo near Bancroft uh, in the municipality of Hastings Highlands. So this is cottage country, basically, and a couple named Mark and Tammy Drivesdale moved a bunch of exotic animals they owned to a property um, in this area after they got kicked out of another town for violating its bylaws that said you couldn't have exotic animals. So unfortunately, they brought a whole bunch of uh, big cats and potentially some other animals, I can't recall right now, to this municipality, basically because, I don't know if it was for sure because, but I'm sure they looked at the the bylaws and found somewhere that didn't have any local exotic animal ban and set up shop here. So... This has been an issue for a while. People are not happy about the fact that there are big cats uh, in the area. And the news story that we're talking about today is from the CBC. It's focused on how apparently they're breeding the big cats and a number of lion cubs have been born. And I guess one of the zoo proprietors has been posting on Facebook and saying, oh, the mother rejected the cubs. So he's hand feeding these three lion cubs, which is troubling because they should be with their mom. Um, Obviously, we don't know if it's true that the mother rejected the cubs, but I do know that it's true that zoos will often say that mothers rejected the cubs and they have to hand feed them. But when in reality, what they're really doing is they're grooming those animals 
animals and they're getting used to human contact so that they can use them as props in uh, photo ops. Because you can charge, you know, 20 bucks a pop for a, a picture that someone can post on their Instagram with a cute little lion club. So not a good situation. And Peter, I'm glad that this story highlights the fact that Ontario has no exotic animal regulations right now. Um, we're the only province in the country that doesn't regulate the possession of exotic animals or zoos for that matter. We don't license zoos. So it's no wonder that situations like this pop up when we've done such a poor job of protecting these animals. It's kind of hard to believe that anyone would just move to get around exotic animal bylaws, right? It's really hard to believe anyone would have the nerve. Wait a minute, that rings a bell, Camille. I believe that has been done before. I think that what they have done in this case, our friends in Bancroft, the lion breeders, have what I'm gonna start calling in future, they've pulled a Nakuda, right? They have pulled Ooh. a Yasmin Nakuda, because that's exactly what she did. Our old friend Yasmin Nakuda, who seems to come up on this podcast every year during the holidays, show. Um, although she's been pretty quiet. I haven't seen Yasmin in the news with her, you know, crazy ideas. She of, has her own private menagerie right private now, but are you going to explain who she is? Yeah, she's the, Ikea, she's the Ikea monkey lady. The lady who brought, uh, just Google Ikea monkey and you'll find Yasmin Nakuda. She is uh, a lawyer. I love saying that because I always have to convince myself that it's true. Um, she is a lawyer and she has monkeys that she, well, various forms not just monkeys. She's got her whole little private zoo of exotic animals. And when she had her monkeys in Toronto, well, the Toronto bylaw officials ended up seizing, you know, the Ikea monkey. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't call him the Ikea monkey because his name is Darwin. Darwin is his name and, and he's um, now in a sanctuary. Yeah, he's in a sanctuary now. And like they, you know, they caused so much problems for Yasmin that she just packed up her menagerie and moved to another jurisdiction that has no rules about exotic animals. So what's going on here is part of a playbook that's been seen many times before and we will continue to see until the province or the federal government gets its act together and creates real exotic animal uh, laws that prohibit the breeding and and raising of these animals and and frankly what's just amazing to me I don't live in Bancroft and these days in Bancroft I'm guessing it's anywhere in the in the spitting distance of Toronto real estate values are you know going through the roof um, it, it's it's like it's amazing to me. I I don't know whether I'd be more appalled as an animal advocate or as a neighbor. Like if I lived in Bancroft, I'd be like, I don't want lions here. Like it's it's yeah, and the community is not happy. I imagine not, right? I mean, it's 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 not as if. <laughs> We haven't seen escapes before. Like we have, like these things have happened before. These are dangerous animals who I hate to break it to you are not meant to be interacting with humans. Like that is just the reality of the situation. And, uh, you know, I'm upset that they were able to pull a Nakuda and I'm very upset that uh, I'll be upset until this eventually, like what happens is that I'm assuming at some point they'll continue to go through various forms of litigation, which will take a long time because they'll try to get themselves grandfathered out of any law that Bancroft tries to pass saying that well we moved here under these pretenses uh, this really shows the weakness of our patchwork approach to exotic animals we've talked about it again and again on this show yeah it's a real problem and I also want to highlight the uh, Ministry of the Solicitor's General's response to the situation because it's them that has responsibility for overseeing animals um, you know kept in zoos and places like this 
they first of all highlighted the fact that they passed the Paws Act recently, well, a year and a half ago, which is supposed to create a new animal welfare system that is more robust, transparent, and accountable. I mean, I haven't seen any robustness, transparency, or accountability yet from that agency, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> Failing uh, on all three fronts, Camille. But they do have that yeah. cool name. <laughs> Paws, the Paw Patrol. <laughs> but uh, they also add that any future prohibitions or restrictions on possessing or breeding of certain animals would be developed in future regulations in consultation with the Paws Advisory Table and other stakeholders as appropriate. Let me just say, Peter, I know that they're engaging in this process, this advisory table, and they're consulting on whatever they're going to do for regulations. It's only a year before the next election. Um, you know, what are the chances that they actually produce something and pass it and implement it by then? I don't know. It's not looking good to me. No, I guess not. Like, I think, uh, I think, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to go with no. I'm going to guess no. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that situation and keep you folks posted. Keep you posted on the exciting, yeah, not exciting, depressing Ugh. news that hopefully uh, gets changed. Oh, God, no. Speaking of depressing news, Camille, uh, Manitoba. Yeah, we've got a bunch of egg gag stories coming up. Manitoba. You did the deed, didn't you, Manitoba? You don't have enough problems with COVID. Um, Manitoba being now, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased to say, Camille, it's not Alberta anymore. <laughs> Alberta, Alberta was the 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 North American leader in COVID transmission. Although I will say, I got to give credit to my fellow Albertans. Like that 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 curve came down real quick. Like once the restrictions came in, which by the way, sorry, I, I this is really a segue, which pays heed to the freaking idea of like Kenny's nonsense, where he talked for weeks about well, we can't put in rules that people aren't going to follow. Like, so he he resisted for weeks and weeks putting in like harsh shutdown rules. And then finally he puts harsh shutdown rules in saying this is an absolute public health emergency. And look at that. Like Albertans responded. What a crazy idea, right, Camille? <laughs> they, they yeah, no, it's inevitable. They responded to legal pressure. And, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so now Manitoba's having issues, but they're still managing to pass ag-gag laws that are very troubling. Yeah, it's good that they've got their priorities straight. Dealing with the COVID crisis, passing ag-gag laws, you know, just the important stuff. So they have passed this law. We've spoken about this at length on the show before, but essentially it's a version of what Ontario passed. It doesn't uh, it doesn't target undercover exposés of factory farms, but it does prevent people from interacting with animals inside transport trucks and uh, could put people at risk for exposing those conditions. And of course, it makes it illegal to give suffering animals water. So, you know, you can ship animals for days at a time in sweltering heat. But uh, if you want to, as an advocate, give them some water to try to give them some relief that's not okay yeah so pretty disappointing but uh we believe elements of this law are unconstitutional so stay tuned for more yeah i think that is uh again we're just finding more and more places i think what's most troubling about this and this is nothing new because we've talked about it before is the basic idea that um is the basic idea that more jurisdictions are jumping on board and that's gonna you know going one by one by each provincial jurisdiction you know it's just it just it, it puts a lot of energy and resources on the back of advocates who want to essentially <laughs> create a sense of freedom where we're like we can do our jobs and monitor how conditions are on behalf of animals it's really it's really i i'm i'm excited in a sense about the litigation because i think it will help uh um uncover some of the negative aspects of both these laws and the motivations behind them but uh, at the same time it is exhausting that jurisdiction after jurisdiction seems to think this is the best way of dealing with a serious problem i know and then you 
look at other jurisdictions like the UK, which is doing proactive, really important stuff. And over here in Canada, we're just trying to spin our wheels fighting the negative stuff that our country and provinces are doing. But that's uh, that's life. That is where so we speaking, are. Yeah. Speaking of other efforts to pass ag gag laws, we uh, have a bit of an update on Bill C-205, which is the federal ag gag bill. And you'll recall that that's a bill that makes it an extra, extra, extra offense to go onto a farm unlawfully because you could be dinged for creating some sort of risk of biosecurity exposure. Now, Bill C-205 is before the Agriculture Committee right now. Those hearings have been ongoing for a little while. And there's been some interesting testimony, Peter. Mm. Um, so far, we've heard from the bill sponsor, who didn't have a lot to point to in terms of why he thought this bill was important for protecting biosecurity on farms, but he did keep emphasizing, um, you know, the negativity of activism, Activists, farmers' yeah. mental health with mm. trespassing. Uh, we've heard from the CFIA, which does not seem very warm to this bill. The CFIA pointed out that they would have a lot of difficulty enforcing it because mm. they're not peace officers. Mm. They uh, are not prepared to do this type of enforcement, and they believe that they have an effective biosecurity regime. They also said they don't think that trespassers pose much of a risk to um, farms. They don't think that animals are getting sick on farms because of trespassers. And in fact, Peter, we have some evidence to back that up. Mm. So Animal Justice analyzed biosecurity data compiled by the CFIA. So Peter, every time there's a reportable disease outbreak on the farm, and reportable means a certain category of types of diseases, the CFIA does an investigation and it publishes the results of those. Mm. And these are things like, you know, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, these are things like swine flu, like bird flu. CFIA looks into it, tries to determine the cause, and takes remedial action to address it. So we analyze the CFIA's data about biosecurity outbreaks on farms, and guess what? Do you think any of those were caused by trespassers? Uh, from what I'm hearing from the industry, Camille, the trespassers are the largest number one threat. And I would assume, just based on what I've been reading, that all of them would be caused by activists, because that just stands to reason, doesn't it? You'd assume that if you listen to the industry talk, but actually what the case is, is that most of these threats seem to be caused by the actions of farmers themselves. So it could be things like sharing needles, um, things like using farm equipment in different areas of different barns that haven't been disinfected. Um, oftentimes, animals might come into contact with wild animals who can spread diseases. I think that's especially the case with birds because uh, bird flu exists in the wild. Uh, you know, feeding dead animals to live animals was the huge problem I that um, created the BSE crisis. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely risks, but uh, it doesn't seem like the evidence supports the idea that any of them have to do with animal advocates. Well, that assumes that we're going to make evidence-based decisions, aren't we, Camille? Like uh, the idea is, you know, if, if we were making evidence-based decisions, we probably wouldn't have all the ag-ag laws that we currently have in place. Uh, it is certainly, um, you know, a concern at the very least that we continue to, all of these laws have one thing in common. It's sort of this idea of manifesting fear about activists when it really is about closing ranks and making sure that no one except the farmers who have, of course, the animal's best interests at heart are able to enter in these places where they house often thousands and thousands of animals. Yeah, that's an interesting segue to our next story, which is a piece from Radio Canada. So they did a provincial access to information request in Quebec in relation to um, a farm occupation. Well, not, not necessarily the occupation, but in relation to a farm called Poor Greg Porcherie. So this is a pig farm. And uh, at Poor Greg, some advocates uh, went onto that farm. They trespassed onto the farm and they did a bit of a lockdown. They live streamed the conditions inside in December 2019, I think. And uh, Peter, I don't know if you saw that live stream, but it was terrible. Like the, the conditions were appalling. The animals were covered in filth. They appeared to be overcrowded. It was not a nice situation. 
situation. So it turns out that MAPAC, which is the ministry or the agency of the ministry responsible for inspecting firms if there's a complaint, it did go look at this firm after that occupation to see what was up. And I bring this up because this case has been used as an example by the industry of why we need these ag-gag laws. They're like, oh, these people trespassed. It was so dangerous. It was so bad. They scared the animals. What the MAPAC report shows is actually when they got there, it was a literal cesspool. They said that there was excessive excrement. Animals were overcrowded. Animals were not doing well. They pointed to a whole variety of problems and they issued a whole bunch of corrective orders. And I just find it so interesting, Peter, that no one from the industry has ever mentioned that in the context of this case. Well, clearly that farm operator was a rogue, Camille, and they were operating, you know, well outside the norms of the farming community. As we know, Camille, whenever we discover something going on on farms, you know, it is to be condemned because it is clearly outside of the standards that are you know, very well defined, completely unenforceable, but they are very the collective wisdom of the farming community and therefore, you know, not to be worried about. Uh, But but I mean, we've seen this time and time again. If you look hard enough for things going wrong uh, in terms of animal treatment on farms, you will find it. It is not uh, it's not as if (laughs) I've never I've, I've known a lot of activists. I myself don't go on farms. I'm a little old for that. And it's not my uh, you know, my purpose in this movement. But like, it's very funny how every time I've spoken to them, the one thing they've said is, yeah, it's not too hard to find violators. It's just like, it's like go into a farming community and toss a stone and you'll find a violator. And let me be clear, like, I don't want to be facetious. There are degrees of violators. There's no doubt. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that every farm owner is violating in in massive ways. I, I, I actually don't think that's true, but I, I do think violations are occur. And I I certainly think if you want to find it, it's not that hard to find. Yeah. I mean, that's why every time someone does an undercover expose and, you know, which are chosen randomly, uh, they reveal pretty horrific abuse. Well, because what we've seen is we've seen is that it's the conditions themselves. I don't want to go back and rehash old territory, but it's clearly the conditions of industrial farming that cause the abuse. It's not. That's why that's why there's this misnomer or this misthought that like abuse is, you know, these rogues operating out of turn and they get angry and they're doing the wrong thing. Well, like I, I've said to you this before, every time you look at one of these exposés, like the media always wants to focus on any form of violence towards the animals. They always do because that makes the most graphic imagery. And I do think that type of violence goes on more than usual. But I'm prepared to accept as an assumption that violent treatment towards animals is not, is not I don't want to say is not the norm because I think it happens more than it should. But I don't think it's going on on every farm. I just don't believe that to be true. That said, I do believe that the endemic cruelty that exists on on farms, slaughterhouses, trucking operations, like I don't think the people freezing the Maple Lodge chickens are trying to do that. I don't believe they are. I just think they're okay with it when it happens, right? It's just wastage. Uh, Those animals suffer nonetheless. And I think, you know, we need to reframe our ideas as we've talked about many times on this show about what cruelty actually is, or, you know, we're not going to see it is that makes any sense yeah no i agree i agree Um, when you you know when you think about what this report revealed which is one animal who 
they said it should be euthanized right away. Um, presence of many flies in a bunch of the sections, infestations. I mean, these are conditions that we see regularly. And I think, uh, you know, the overcrowding and the filth would be a lot worse. You know, if I were a pig and I tried to put myself in that place of understanding what kind of hell you're living in, um, I think that would be far worse than being kicked every now and then. It's just living in those day-to-day conditions. Mm. So I agree, you're right. The media tends to focus on the discreet acts of violence perpetuated by humans, but it's not so much the violence that's the problem, although the it condition. is a problem. It's the condition. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit, and I realize the situation is different, but it reminds me a little bit of that story we talked about, um, you know, a couple of, I guess it was a couple of shows ago about the Nova Scotia woman who was the dog breeder, right? It was the same thing. Like, I was prepared to accept, and the judge certainly accepted, that the woman was really trying to do her best for the animals once she had this problem that came out out of, you know, no fault of her own. Like, I take, you know, there were some stretches in the logic the judge was willing to accept. But, like, even if I accept that, it's not the issue to me whether she was trying to do right or wrong. The issue was, like, why are you breeding that many animals in the first place? And who suffers when things go wrong? It's the same thing here. Like, the issue is not, oh, this farmer was bad or this treatment guy was bad or this slaughterer wasn't doing things right. It doesn't really matter because, like, to me, the fact that this individual breeder slash farmer slash operator can do right or wrong is really neither here nor there. The conditions are set up in a way that there is going to be a degree of wrong in the way in which these animals are treated. That's just endemic. And that's what I've seen in every one of these situations. Again, I don't want to keep repeating this, but like when I see those, I always look past the violence and I'm like, yeah, I'm more concerned about all those holding pens. And I'm more concerned about the way the the pigs can't move around or the cows are, you know, their udders are swollen. These are not violence issues, but they're just as much a concern. In fact, they're more of a concern to me because they're more prevalent. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, all of this that we're talking about is compounded by the fact that the government doesn't, compounded and created by the fact that the government doesn't regulate or inspect farms for animal welfare conditions. I mean, they will in response to a complaint, as we've seen in this in this situation sometimes. Um, but, you know, if not for these activists who were on that farm, potentially unlawfully, uh, we wouldn't have known about this. And the inspectors wouldn't have come to this farm. So I'm not here advocating for people to be trespassing on farms. That's that's not what I'm trying to say. So don't misunderstand the words. But it is a problem when no one's going to look. No one's there from the government to check out and see what conditions are like. And for our main segment this episode, I'm going to be sitting down and speaking with Casey Bond of Faunalytics about a new U.S. wildlife trafficking report that the organization just released. Casey Bond is the communications manager at Faunalytics and has nearly a decade of experience working as a communications specialist in the U.S., U.K., and Australia. Casey graduated from NYU's inaugural Animal Studies MA program, where she published research on the harms of alligator wrestling and co-launched New York City's first veterinary clinic for families experiencing homelessness with companion animals. She also has an MA in social social psychology from the London School of Economics and a Bachelor of Communications in Psychology from the University of Miami. Casey, welcome to Paw and Order. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's great to it's great to speak with you. I'm excited to delve into the details of the Faunalytics report. But before we get into that, I just wanted to ask a few more questions about you and your background for our listeners. Um, and specifically, we'd love to know more about Faunalytics and what the organization does. Absolutely. So Faunalytics works behind the scenes as a capacity building organization in the animal protection movement. So we were established in the year 2000 to provide research 
research and insights and analysis to animal advocates to help them work smarter to make more progress for animals. So, for example, we offer a program of original research where we dig into animal advocacy questions. We have a research library with thousands of study summaries where advocates can quickly read and learn and apply insights to their campaigns. And we also offer direct support to other animal charities to help them with all of their research and data questions, um, among many other resources as well. And um, I think what's really important for people to know is that um, what we're doing is often behind the scenes and doesn't really get seen a lot in terms of the movement. But what we are doing is absolutely critical because factory farms and other industries that exploit and harm animals have tons of resources at their disposal to uh, conduct market research and do marketing campaigns and sway public opinion to their advantage. And we in the animal advocacy movement, especially for all of us who advocate for overlooked animals like farmed animals, we often have very, very few resources. And the resources we have, we want to spend as effectively as possible. So Faunalytics is here and we like to say we help you know the animal advocates compete, essentially. We help show them who to reach out to, which messages to use, which channels to use in order to make sure that we we are using our very limited resources as effectively as possible. Well, thanks for that explanation. And I'll just say I'm a huge fan of Faunalytics. I subscribe uh-huh. to your uh, <laughs> regular newsletter. And for listeners out there who are interested in receiving this kind of information and data, it's a really cool, diverse array of info that you folks compile. It's everything from, you know, what communication strategies are most effective, what public opinion polls have been conducted recently to specific issues about, you know, you know feral cats in an area, like very, very granular work. And so it really cuts across all areas of animal advocacy. And you can get personalized research recommendations in the newsletter too. So I encourage you folks to check check that out if you're interested. Absolutely. We deliver them on a weekly or a monthly basis. So I know that one issue people have is they don't want to get emails every single week. So you can customize that as well. Super valuable information. There's, uh, you know, if, if we're not using data to do the best work and be the best advocates we can, we are leaving um, impact on the table, so to speak. 100%. And I hope that comes clear through this interview. I hope that's like one of the big lessons that can be taken away. So. Oh, we'll make sure it is. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to this uh, report that you completed about wildlife imports into the States. What was it about this topic that made you folks want to jump into it and try to get to the bottom of the data? So that's a great question. Um, It's something that we have been thinking about for a while. We want to help as many different animal advocates as possible, um, regardless of what category of animal you're advocating for. And so producing something on the wildlife trade has been of interest to us for quite some time. Um, We decided to look at the legal wildlife trade because from our perspective, it often gets overlooked, especially by the public, even though it can have some major impacts and harms on animals in the environment. Um, So we decided to release it now because uh, with the onset, I'm sure everyone's sick of this word, (laughs) COVID-19, with the onset of COVID-19 last year, really it kind of made a lot of people think about our relationships with um, animals and with wildlife in particular. And so our goal was to release this, this analysis at a time when advocates can capitalize on it and treat this as sort of a low hanging fruit. This issue of um, trading wildlife coming into contact with wildlife is at the 
top of the public's agenda. And so hopefully advocates can make a difference while people are thinking about it. Well, I think that's really important. I know that there's a number of organizations who are actively campaigning on this issue now, talking about not just, as you mentioned, the the illegal wildlife trade, but also the the legal trade. Um, In Canada, there's been a great campaign by World Animal Protection and a report that they've issued on the Canadian situation. And I know they've done global work on this too. So it's great to have um, more data. Uh, I do want to go back to this question of the legal versus the illegal wildlife trade. And I wonder if you could delve into that topic a little bit more for our listeners and try to put in context, you know, if you have a sense of how much of the trade is legal versus illegal. I know in Canada, the stats suggest that, um, you know, well, uh, quite a lot of trade that most of the trade I think that's happening, it's it, people think of illegal wildlife trade and poaching and things like that. But most of the trading that tends to go on is, in fact, um, you know, something that's sanctioned by domestic and international laws. So can you just delve into that a little bit? So it's interesting that you say that, because when it comes to navigating um, the line between what's legal and what's illegal, it's really, 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 really hard to do. Um, because, you know, for one thing, you know, what's legal and what's one country may not be legal in another country. There's also ways that people take illegal imports and illegal um, products and pass them off as legal, um, laundering activity that happens. And so what we tend to say is that all we know for certain is that the illegal trade is happening. It is massive. Um, and it's, it's definitely like a shadow that's somewhat connected and looming over the legal side of things. But beyond that, it is really hard to track exactly how much of it is legal versus not legal. Um, But I do want to clarify a little bit of um, illegal versus legal trade, because I definitely think that people, like you said, when they hear about wildlife trade, they they automatically think about things like rhino poaching and, um, you know, killing elephants for ivory and pangolin scales and a lot of the things that get the media headlines. And a lot of that is illegal. Well, it's illegal. And it's clandestine groups that tend to go behind the scenes and kill and traffic animals on the black market. And a lot of the problems with illegal trafficking are are quite straightforward and in some ways more straightforward than the legal side of things because in addition to you know the individual animals who are killed and harmed by the poaching by the trafficking you've also got um, most of these species are either vulnerable or endangered or about to be endangered and so taking just one animal and killing her or removing her from the environment is going to have massive ripple effects for species uh, species conservation and for the environment. And then when it comes to the legal side of things, um, you know, a lot of times the legal side of the industry is done within the parameters of the law and is regulated by governments or government entities. Um, But it will typically fly under the public's radar because when you look at a lot of the products that are traded legally, it's not automatically things that will raise alarms. You know, it's, it's not like we're seeing a ton of bear bile being tracked legally. We're not seeing pangolin scales. It's things like shells, um, meat, leather and products that the everyday consumer likely wouldn't think twice about. But that doesn't mean that um, just because something's legal, it's not causing harm and and causing suffering for the animals that are involved in it. As animal advocates know, especially when it comes to things like factory farming, you know, that's legal too. (laughs) Doesn't mean it's it's not horrifying. Um, And then for for the wildlife trade, it's also we had seen that over 3 billion live specimens, organisms, and animals were being traded 
created and being imported into the U.S. That's millions of individual beings per year. That not only is going to have a massive impact on animal welfare, it's also going to impact the environment that they live in. Up to 80% of these animals and these specimens are being taken from the wild, and that is bound to have an impact on conservation and protection. Yeah, that's horrifying. And I think, I take your point, I think it's a really important one, distinguishing between the illegal and illegal trade and the fuzziness of those concepts. And you know, this idea that so much of what we do to animals is legal because the law is a power relationship. It reflects the mm-hmm. values of the public, but also the values and the lobbying power of people who want a law or don't want a law. And when you've got these powerful industries that profit handsomely from selling the parts of wild animals, of course, there's going to be some legal activity there because they're effective at making that happen. So I think that's totally an important point. So I wonder, just to make things a little bit more specific for our our listeners, I wonder if you could give us an idea of what animals and products tend to be the most traded um, and which tend to be animals imported who are alive versus uh, dead animals or their body parts. So I can't speak to a global level, of course, but when it comes to, because we didn't look at global level, we looked at the U.S. And when it comes to the United States, the most popular items that were imported were um, shells and shell products, uh, live individual organisms. That includes animals, that includes, you know, corals, which are also animals, of course, and and any sort of live being, um, and jewelry items. And then you can break it down uh, more, more than that. Like you can look at within animal categories, like mammals tend to be most commonly trafficked if you're comparing other categories. Um, But things can get really, really tricky when you're trying to get at the granular level of, you know, which animals are live versus dead when they're imported. Because, you know, when you look at the data, it it, it tells you what's happening, right? It tells you when things are being imported, how much is being imported, where it's coming from. But it doesn't always tell you why. And it doesn't always give us like context behind the insight. And so in order to figure out details behind what's happening, you often have to speculate. So when it comes to which species are imported live versus dead, you know, it really depends on what their end use is. So animals traded legally for research or as part of the pet trade would presumably be brought in alive. And, um, you know, you have to think about which animals are, are most commonly brought in internationally for research. You know, I mean, I'm not saying this is exactly it, but often primates are an example. And then when you're thinking about animals brought in dead, um, we had a lot of imports of hunting trophies, for example, animals that were parts were imported for materials. And that's, you know, of course, those animals are going to be brought in dead either because they um, were killed as hunting trophies or because it's their product being used as opposed to the animal themselves. Mm, Interesting information. Well, and interestingly, of course, this is a Canadian podcast, so we must point out that it seems like Canada is one of the top 10 sources of wildlife sent to the U.S. And when you bring up hunting trophies, that makes me wonder if you have any insight into whether a substantial amount of of that wildlife that's being trafficked is hunting trophies, because I know it's quite common that U.S. big game hunters will come up here and visit outfitters and shoot a bunch of animals and bring them back. So funny you bring that up. I was going to mention, I recently read an analysis from 2019 um, that looked at the legal and illegal side of the trade over 36 years, including the period we were looking at in our report. And it showed that Canada exported the largest number of uh, legal trophies and 
animal trophy parts to the United States over that time period. Um, there are many, many, as you know, probably even better than I do, there are many different animals that are exported from Canada as trophies, but one common one is bears, actually, black and brown bears. Um, but of course, that's, that's just one example. Um, and then when you look at the highest value imports in the United States, a lot of it, you know, trophies were in the top 15, of course, and then also the vague category of dead animals. And so presumably, both of those are related at least some part to the trophy hunting industry, uh, which may, of course, help explain a little bit of, of Canada's role and what's happening. Um, but also, we have to think about proximity. Canada is so close to the United States. And um, when it comes to, for example, importing wild game meat on an individual level, like if you're bringing it in for personal use, Canada does have different restrictions as versus other countries. And so, you know, when you have two countries that are so close to each other, it's perhaps not as surprising that you're seeing um, an increased flow in, in, in trade. Mm, that does make sense. That's interesting. Uh, I'm also curious to delve in a little bit about shell products. So you mentioned that shells are overwhelmingly the largest category of, of items that are imported. That just seems so surprising to me. I, I mean, I, I don't see shells around all the time. I don't really see them being used. I'm curious if you have any insights, Casey, into what they are being used for. What do people do with them once they import them? Yeah, this is definitely a surprising one. And, um, you know, I, I'm from the beach and like a beachy area. And so for me, it's like, why are we importing shells? Not that it makes it any better to, to take shells from within the U.S., but I always think to myself, I, I can't believe how how common it is. Um, and so shells, the shell industry is, is a big and thriving one globally. Shells are commonly imported for decorations, fashion, uh, artisan products, handicrafts. They can be sold on their own, perhaps wholesale. Uh, one issue with the shell trade that people may not think about is that in many cases, shells are harvested with marine life already in them. And so, you know, when that happens, the marine life will inevitably die uh, throughout the course of the trade. And so at first, it may sound harmless to people. You know, the everyday person might think, oh, shells, whatever. It's 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 just a shell, you, you know. find them on the beach, but, no big deal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But when you consider that over 4 billion shells were imported to the U.S. over 15 years. That is a devastating impact on animals and also on the environment. Shells play a very important role in ecosystem health, environmental health, and um, taking such a large amount from the environment will no doubt have an impact. Yeah, that's really, really troubling. And if anyone hasn't seen Seaspiracy yet, I encourage you all to watch it to get a you know bit of a snapshot mm -hmm. into what's happening with our oceans right now, which is not a good situation. Well, that's interesting. Uh, thank you for that. So another thing that was curious to me about the data is that the number of animals who are called quote unquote meat in the data set, the number was lower than many categories, many other categories, yet by weight, meat seemed to represent the largest volume of imports. Do you have any insight about what might be going on there and which animals are being uh, imported into the U.S. for consumption? So that is a really great question. And this one, I will say up front, I wish I had more insights on this one because I'm just like you. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. So, you know, sadly, there are a lot of popular exotic meats in the USA um, and, you know, selling exotic meats at restaurants is common as well um, in certain restaurants. And it's not clear how much of that figure is uh, animals imported for meat for personal use. So like hunters, for example, versus the exotic meat trade um, being sold in restaurants and such. Um, I know that there are restrictions in the United States around bringing in exotic meat, but I don't, I'm not familiar enough with the restrictions um, to know whether how strict they are and, and also whether there are any 
loopholes around them. Um, but the most that we can speculate here is that the animals being brought in are clearly yielding a very large volume of meat, large enough to make the volume of meat very high on the list of, of volume of products imported. But the individual numbers of animals are just not high enough to exceed other categories of, of animals being brought in. And that suggests that these are larger, quote unquote, game animals. These are larger meat animals um, that require fewer animals in order to yield a high volume of meat versus if you were um, importing smaller game animals where you would have to have many, many more of them in order to get that volume of meat. But beyond that, um, I wish I had more insight. Maybe one of your listeners is a is a legal expert in the USA who can who can fill us in. Yeah, if anyone has any insight, please drop us a note, info at animaljustice.ca. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting. Thanks for that. Uh, another thing that stuck out to me, and I'm, I'm glad you made this point. So you, you mentioned ivory, elephant ivory in the report and how that's still legally important to the States, which I think is surprising to some people because there is a bit of a perception that the ivory trade is just being shut down at this point, that the only ivory that enters the market is from poaching. Um, but how is it that ivory is still legally allowed to be traded, Casey? Yeah. So to clarify, in the report, we found that over $2 billion worth of ivory and ivory products were legally imported into the United States in our analysis. And as you mentioned, that was shocking. That was shocking for a lot of people, myself included. Um, and, you know, as you also mentioned, the ivory trade has faced strict international bans since the 1990s. Um, but there are some loopholes in the U.S. And one of them is if you import elephant ivory as part of a hunting trophy, it is allowed even under the ban. Oh, I know. I, I know. Oh. And as and as what we saw, one of the highest value products um, that was brought in was that raw ivory, which would be part of, of hunting trophies there. Um, but also if you have what they call worked ivory, which is not non-raw ivory, like ivory made into products, if you have legally acquired worked ivory from prior to 1976 and you can prove it's part of um, an inheritance or it's part of a musical instrument or a traveling exhibition for some reason, <laughs> you can technically legally import it as well. And when you look at the report, in addition to raw ivory, one of the highest value products that was brought in was... Um, ivory piano keys. And so considering that's a musical instrument that would be uh, allowed under the ban, although, you know, when you think about it, whether all of the ivory piano keys brought into the U.S. are genuinely pre-ban or are they being passed off as, as pre-ban and passed off as legal, who knows? Yeah, I know that's a huge problem on the international scene when it comes to ivory, the ivory trade. It's just constant that they're finding examples of people fraudulently misrepresenting ivory as being pre-1976, but in reality, it's from elephants killed more recently. So, yeah, I know many people have been calling for a shot off altogether of the ivory trade for that reason. It's because it's so impossible to um, enforce it otherwise. But wow, two billion is just a staggering number either way. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Well, speaking of enforcement, Casey, I wonder if you could talk about what the data do reveal about enforcement. So, you know, you've got all these products coming from animals, live animals, dead animals into the States. Um, presumably, some of the time these shipments don't meet the legal requirements for even, you know, what's permissible to be imported. I'm wondering what you've seen uh, in terms of enforcement patterns when you look at the holistic picture. Yeah. So in the 15 years that we looked at in the analysis, um, it hovered around one 
one to two percent of all shipments were either one identified as illegal or two uh, refused. And refused doesn't necessarily mean that they were illegal. It could be, for example, that an importer, um, you know, didn't have the appropriate paperwork or something. But that figure hovered pretty standard around one to two percent um, since after, like since the time that the analysis ended. So the analysis went up to 2014 because that was the most recent available data that you can get from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, since then, we know there have been years that that spiked and that number has gotten bigger, years that it's gone back down to one to two percent. Um, and so the one thing, not to be a pile of negativity here, but the one thing that I think we can be fairly certain of is that even though one to two percent of shipment in our analysis was what was caught, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's definitely one to two percent of all shipments are illegal. Um, you know, we can be certain that it's it's definitely more than that. Um, but as I mentioned, in actually enforcing the illegal activity can be extremely difficult. So things can be passed off as legal by like not just, you know, forging paperwork, but like potentially using trade routes and, and navigating through certain routes in order to make things look above board. Um, and then you also have to think about the parts of the industry where everything is done behind the scenes, like the parts where, you know, they don't even attempt to pass something off as legal or go through the official channels. And so when you really, really think about it, the quote unquote wildlife trade isn't just one industry. It's tons and tons and tons of different industries that are like lumped into this one umbrella of the wildlife trade. And from that perspective, it is a huge effort for any one government or group of governments to try and enforce. It's, it's like tackling an enemy with, you know, an endless number of, of arms and legs. <laughs> I can't think of a better analogy right now. Yeah, it really is a problem that requires a global solution. And uh, we haven't talked yet about CITES, the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species. But, you know, people hear about the existence of CITES and they think, oh, that's good. We've got protections internationally for endangered animals. And, you know, presumably governments are doing something about this and they're they're caring enough about it. Uh, but when you actually look at what CITES requires, it, it, it doesn't mean that you can't trade endangered animal parts. It just means that you need a permit to do so. And certain countries opt out of certain provisions. And so it becomes incredibly complex and, and not super protective. So I really take your point about enforcement. Um, you know, the other context, of course, is that you're if you're somebody enforcing or sorry, if you're somebody importing or exporting all these shipments and you think, you know, probably the chance of getting caught is about one or, you know, one in 10, one in 20. Then what's your incentive there not to just send a bunch of shipments through, hope that most of them make it through and then pay the fine when you actually get dinged on that one time? Like, I think that with our sort of spot check enforcement policies, which I don't know if that's the same in the States, that's certainly what we have in Canada to some extent. Um, you know, it just becomes this real patchy situation where so many shipments get through without anybody inspecting or really delving into the paperwork. You're absolutely right. And then when we as animal advocates think about people shipping tons of things and not concerned about, you know, a few not getting through, you know, we put it into the context of these are animals, these are living beings, but the people doing this importing um, aren't thinking about it from that perspective. And and if they did, hope, you know, if they did, you'd think that they wouldn't be doing it in the first place. So, um, so yeah, it definitely opens up a whole can of worms for sure. Yeah. It's oh, a horrible analogy. I shouldn't say that. Sorry. A whole compost bin of worms. <laughs> yes. 
Thank you. And we haven't even got into this whole idea of how many animals die during transit. I mean, shipment, shipment, shipping animals around the world or shipping animals even domestically is incredible, incredibly stressful for them. Um, we know that during farmed animal transport, where there are some regulations, these animals die at very, very high rates. And I know animals used in the exotic pet trade suffer even worse. I mean, I think fishes and reptiles and birds suffer some of the highest rates of death during transit, but that's another huge problem that doesn't even really have to do with, uh, you know, what we're talking about today, which is just like the fact of those animals being imported. It's just like inherent in this import-export business is that you're having just immense suffering of those individuals. Absolutely. No, and that cannot be overlooked. And you're absolutely right. And I would love to see, um, we didn't do it in this analysis, but I actually really would love to see um, a breakdown on, you know, outcomes of the live animals in particular who are brought to the U.S. because that's really important too. There was a study uh, a few years ago that, you know, a lot of people think even if something seized, even if an import of, of you know, let's say illegally obtained animals are, are seized, different things to save the day. It's it's good. We are happy. But sadly, you know, when an animal is seized, an animal import is seized and brought to even a sanctuary, there can be a lot of issues. There are a lot of health issues that occurred as a result of being in these gruesome transport conditions. A lot of animals that are, you know, saved at the border or you know, intercepted from illegal traffickers, they still end up sadly dying um, as a result of complications from from the transport and from the trafficking. And so um, sadly, you know, even when we do seize animals, even when we do prevent them from being brought to their end destination, it's not always a happy story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think it's important that we're seeing more advocacy around combating the legal and illegal wildlife trade. And obviously, the, the fact that we now understand what zoonotic diseases are and how they emerge, I think, is useful to that effect. And it's encouraging to see, you know, groups like yours working on this. Um, I, I mentioned the World Animal Protection Campaign in Canada, which is great. We'll probably have them on at some point to talk about it. Um, I'm wondering if you have any insight into what lessons you think animal advocates can take from the report that you've published. Yeah, so there are definitely a few lessons. One, the wildlife trade, number one, it still exists in both its legal and illegal form. It is huge um, and it is not going away no matter, you know, unless we take action now. So this is really, really important to act now while this issue is still on the public's mind. Um, the other thing to take away is that we, we always say this, but it's especially true with this report. Um, if we want the public to take action, we need to first make them aware of what's happening. And so you can't expect people to change their opinion or to, you know, join our cause unless they actually know that something's a problem and actually know that something is an issue. And so it's really, really important that we continue to use awareness building as a component in our advocacy um, because, you know, that's the first step towards making change for animals. And from there, all of that leads to my, my third and final takeaway, which is, you know, how important it is to look at the data and not just rely on, you know, guessing work when it comes to campaigns. So, you know, we've talked about it throughout, you know, this chat, but I never would have thought Canada was such a big exporter to the U.S. Um, we were talking about shells, never would have thought shells were such a, you know, highly traded product. Um, and so it's one thing to be an animal advocate and to say, I want to do a campaign to end the wildlife trade, to just say that and just talk about it in broad terms. It's another thing to say, hey, we know shells are heavily imported. Let's target consumers with that. Let's tell people to stop buying shells shell products. Let's um, target Canada. They're our neighbor. We know that this is a big problem where, where animals are being imported from Canada. So let's target them first as a priority country. So, you know, to be able to have that insight to direct our campus is only going to make them more effective. Knowledge is power. I couldn't agree more. Sure. 
Well, for those Canadians listening who are interested in doing something locally to try to support this issue and do what you can to encourage Canada to shut off the international wildlife trade, uh, there is quite an active campaign, as I mentioned right now. Animal Justice is a partner in that campaign, and that's being led by World Animal Protection. But I'll post a link in the show notes where you can go and you can take action. Uh, MPs really need to hear from us right now. It's the right time to be discussing this. We're coming out of the tail end of a global pandemic, at least those of us in Canada and the U.S. are. And, uh, you know, if we want to prevent the next pandemic, then we've got to start taking action to address the root causes of those pandemics. So please consider joining this and uh, lending your support. Casey, how- yeah, and I would chime in. Oh, I was going to say, I would chime in and say, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, asking people to call their MPs, we would also recommend if you're encouraging others to do the same, make it as easy as possible for them to do so. Write down suggested messages for them to leave with their MPs, you know, give them the phone, offer to dial the number. Because when it comes to encouraging people to take action, research shows that giving them the resources and the supports to actually take that follow through action is really important. Super important. Couldn't agree more. Casey, how can people find you and Faunalytics and support your great work? So we are on all major social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Faunalytics. Um, you can also visit our website at www.faunalytics.org in order to sign up for those newsletters and those research alerts that you mentioned at the beginning of this chat. Um, and also, if anyone wants to learn more, but wants to come to me or, or ask us more questions, I encourage people to email me. My email is Casey at faunalytics.org. I can send that to you so you can put it in the show notes. And um, and yeah, like we absolutely love hearing from new advocates. We love answering questions. We get a lot of questions and it's what we do. So um, please do not hesitate to start you know, engaging with the research, engaging with the data to inform your advocacy. Casey, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate hearing about this great work. Thanks for having me, seriously. And thank you for everything you do. I'm a big fan of the show. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. We've got a link. Peter, who's our hero? There's a link, Camille. All I can say is that our Heroes and Zeros both involve tigers. Tigers are on our mind. they do. Yes, we've got tigers on both sides. We've got a hero and a zero. You want to start with the hero or, or zero? Yeah, I yeah like let's to start with a hero. Let's have a little bit of good news. All right, some hero. Well, our hero today is, is this does not happen very often. Certainly not Canada. I don't think I don't think we've ever had a hero being a uh, a uh, the the Canadian Department of Justice. But we are giving our hero of the the this podcast to the U.S. Department of Justice, and we are giving it to them for their perseverance in dealing with the remaining big cats from everybody's favorite or not so favorite uh, show, Tiger King, which I still have not finished Camille. It wasn't really for me. I in the end uh I in the end bowed out of that uh series pretty early. Uh, I'm a very picky uh Netflix walker watcher. So um but I know it was a big deal. Everybody was uh very intrigued to watch Tiger King and I watched enough of it to be horrified by how many tigers were being raised in these exotic zoos. And the the really good news is that federal uh justice officials have really persevered even though not surprisingly some of the operators tried to move cats around in jurisdictions. Camille, I think they tried to pull a Nakuda. <laughs> <gasps> 
No. We've already, we're already able to use our new term. Um, they were trying to move to different jurisdictions. Uh, the Department of Justice came down and seized the last of 68 big cats from a private zoo in Oklahoma, uh, hopefully putting an end to this saga. This is really good news. For anyone who watched that show, the treatment of these animals is disturbing. The fact that they've been allowed to proliferate to such an extent, especially in the States, here too in Canada, we'll get to that, is a real problem. Um, There's no conservation reason to be keeping big cats in zoos, especially not roadside zoos. So I think it's uh, good news, hopefully a sign of things to come, and hopefully we'll see even more federal action to actually restrict possession of these animals even further. Let us hope. Unfortunately, Camille, there's a tiger hero and there's a tiger zero. And our tiger zero is much closer to home. It's really in your neck of the woods. Oh, Camille, it's an Ontario zero. Wow, I'm just so thrilled. Mm, For a change. Oh, it's a Toronto zero, the Toronto Zoo. So the Toronto Zoo has just experienced the death of two tiger cubs, Peter. And why did this happen? All right, well, the first news story came out previously in May. And I think we actually may have spoken about this on a past episode. But here's the situation. The zoo decided to breed uh, a 14-year-old tiger named Maziria. 14 years old is apparently quite old to be breeding a tiger. Like, that's the end of their reproductive phase. So, you know, maybe not super great. Um, And perhaps unsurprising that the two of those babies died. So when the first story came out in the Toronto Star, I was really frustrated just by the tone of the coverage, even sort of more than the events that transpired. Um, This tiger died. They're not really sure why. But the story focused on how upset the zookeepers were. They were just like so sad sad you know it's terrible they really you're saying the original story because this story is is saying it as well like it's all about the zookeepers i'm i I, maybe i'm looking at that story right yeah i think that's what i'm looking at so yeah they just spoke at length about how the zookeepers relate to the tiger and how much it hurt them that she lost one of the cubs crushed and there was just like there was nothing in there about how she might feel right how she might feel to have lost a baby and i just found that like really really you know speciesist and you know frankly sort of like zoo propaganda parading as is journalism. And I find it really frustrating that the zoo often gets a free pass like this. And there's not really critically um, or critical journalism written about how the fact that most Canadians oppose keeping animals in captivity in zoos might play into this. It's pure so joy, really. It's pure joy because the zoo hasn't had tiger cubs in 14 years because we are playing our part in helping to sustain an endangered species. I'm, I'm curious about what part exactly that is. I know that's the thing because there's there's no plan for any of these tigers to no. ever be released back into the we wild. They kind of just say like, oh, if we kill them all off in the wild, at least we'll have some tiger we'll genetics have the here zoo in captivity. Museum. We'll have the zoo museum, right? So we can, we can, I, I don't know why that, I, I mean, I know there are people on different sides of the fence of this, a world without X and a world without Y. Uh, I'm not sure how the idea that we preserve some small genetic pool in like private museums effectively is of any use to the species themselves themselves. Like, I don't see how that solves the problem. As I said, as you point out, there is no plan to reintroduce them. So you're essentially like, you know, who gave all the zoos of the world the power to decide that we're going to be the, you know, the the arc of the preservation of the species going forward. I I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, don't take me for saying I'm, I'm thrilled about the fact that, you know, these animals are going to go extinct in the wild. But I mean, isn't that the bed we've made? Like, isn't that the, 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 the yield 
field we've sown, to use as many metaphors as I can. I, I'm just, I'm struggling to see, like, I'm not excited about the animals going extinct, but nor am I excited about the idea that to preserve them, we're going to keep them in zoos. I don't understand how that solves the problem. It just creates know, different problems. Actually, yeah, if you wanted to actually design um, a compassionate conservation program that focused on the needs of the animals, you could do that by having a really, really big space for them. You know, you could invest the time, you could invest the resources in doing that. You could find an alternate way to do it that didn't involve keeping them in tiny cages and, you know, breeding them in this that, way. That's what I mean, is like the zoos create this self-propelling prophecy where it's like they essentially set up this proposition that this is the only way to do it, so let's do it this way. And the fact that, you know, the megafauna tiger cubs are the type of thing that happens to drive people to zoos, that's just, you know, happy day. No one's talking about the zoo's reproductive prog program for some, you know, insect that's about to go extinct because nobody cares or, or whatever, whatever it is that they're breeding. It's just like it always happens to be the megafauna. And this justification to a certain extent was given. It's been given for a host of animals, hasn't it? It's like they always do that. And then I, I don't understand really at the end of the day what it is that's truly being achieved. That's the problem I have with the whole idea. And again, as I said, it creates problems because, again, the zoo to me is the worst place. If you're going to if you're going to create some sustainability, if we really as a species believe that, I guess I guess what they're saying or or their defense to this would be there's no economic way to do it otherwise. But I'm not sure that's true either. Yeah. And, you know, if you're talking about species conservation, why is it even an economic question? It should be a question of public good. If we really want to make sure that there's genetic diversity in these species. I mean, A, we could start by preserving their habitat and not freaking killing them all. That might help. But B, there would be a way to um, to do it that wouldn't involve zoos. It's just this narrative that sprung up that zoos have perpetuated that's, themselves that's, because they need to justify their existence. That's right? why people I'm the don't most really suspicious. like zoos anymore. People do support conservation and education, so they kind of jumped on this bandwagon of billing their work as about conservation and education. But when you drill into the details, that doesn't really hold water. So just to close the circle on this, uh, another cub died 10 days later. Um, this cub apparently had several heart defects, including a hole between the main chambers and a key blood vessel coming from the wrong side of the organ. So, you know, again, it's just a really heartbreaking situation. There's one cub left, and I'm sure the mother, Mazzy, as they're calling her, uh, I'm sure that she's suffered as a result of this, but the story just focuses on the zookeepers. Hey, well, that is, uh, uh, why did we end with zero? I don't like ending. I know, we should have started with zero. Depressing note. Anyway, that is our heroes and zeros, and that is our show, Camille. Um, and it was a pleasure, as always, catching up with you. We always wonder if we're going to have a lot to say. And as it turns out, you know, we just don't get to catch up much. So we, we, we do have a lot to say. And I'm pleased to say I have one more show before. I don't know if you've announced the whole summer schedule that we've talked about yet, Camille, and it's probably not necessary. I don't think so. But we're going to be taking a, not, yeah. not a summer break, but, but a bit of a break, reducing the, the output a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So I have one more show because I've already signaled that I'm taking a large part of July off. So I will not be doing a show during that time. So I've got one more show to tell you about it. I'm sure I'll be excited in June to uh, come back and uh, celebrate Paw and Order before I go on a little summer break. Well, I'll see you then, Peter. Take care of yourself, Camille. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please give a rating because it helps more people find the show. 
You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRule podcasts, visit iRulePod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!